Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I've got Naveen Jain on the phone. Naveen, uh, I'm going to introduce you, but welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, James. It's a pleasure. So Naveen is the was the founder and CEO of one of the biggest internet companies from the dot-com boom, Infospace. And since then, uh, and what I really am interested in talking about is his recent venture uh, that you started at several years ago, uh, Moon Express, where you're hoping to send a rocket to the moon uh, as a business enterprise to basically collect rare earth minerals, helium-3, all these great things that are on the moon that could be extraordinarily lucrative if you bring them back to the earth. Uh, is that a correct uh, summation of Moon Express? Well, there are, you know, obviously that's one of the part, but I think what we're really trying to do is to make space accessible to everyone. And when I say accessible, it is both from the perspective of as a resource, uh, aggregation of resources, and but also from the perspective of uh, visiting the place, you know, someday if you and I do our job right, the definition of honeymoon should really be about taking your honey to the moon, right? <laughs> that is a, I have, hold on a second. I'm going to ask my wife, okay? Do you mind? Hold on one second. Sure. Uh, Claudia, if I, if we go on a honeymoon eventually, we've been married five years. If we eventually go on a honeymoon, should I take you to the moon? My wife's agreeable to that. Well, so that, now you have to ask her a different question that, you know, so I think in some sense you have to look at this stuff and say, when you really love someone, you give them a diamond, right? And diamond is not even actually rare on earth. Uh, but if you think about it, uh, you know, diamond is only valuable because De Beers marketed it so well, it became a symbol of love. What if you now something when it becomes so successful that everybody has it, then in some sense that becomes your Achilles heel. So what I was thinking was, what if we bring the moon rocks back and we change the whole paradigm that says everyone gives someone a diamond. If you love her enough, you will give her the moon. Well, you know, you're so right that uh, diamonds in particular are a marketing scam. Like there isn't even... Like if you're a commodities trader, for instance, there isn't even an exchange or a spot price for diamonds. It's all based on marketing. So I agree that there could be a market for moon materials. Now, uh, but again, that would require uh, a sales approach. You'd have to make them attractive. Whereas 
the kind of minerals you're actually looking for on the moon, like rare earths or helium, would solve all of the Earth's energy problems overnight. Absolutely, Absolutely correct. So I think what you're really referring to here is that, you know, um, if you think in a long term, the best energy source is something that is readily available and it's non-radioactive. So if you think about if we are able to use helium-3, which is an isotope of helium, and that is a um, not only a great fusion resource, but the, uh, the outcome of the helium-3 is non-radioactive. And a small quantity of helium-3 could, could power this planet for generations. So to me, it is just an absolutely a something that could you know disruptive idea that could be a, that could shift the paradigm from what we how we use energy today to someday in the future. Uh, I agree, and uh, I actually am also really impressed with the mindset just to think in this way. So I almost want to reel back a little bit and kind of take you back to the the mid '90s. You're working at Microsoft. You see Netscape going public and these other, you know, dot coms going public for billion do billions of dollars. What started you on the path of innovation where you decided, I don't need to be an employee anymore. I need to start looking within and being innovative and start coming up with these. Like, like if, if I just say to somebody, hey, I'm going to go to the moon and get some helium three, they would think I was crazy. So, so what got you started on this path of subtracting crazy and replacing it with innovation? Well, you know, first of all, James, in life, if, uh, if you're not doing something that is so big that people call you crazy, that means you're not dreaming big enough. So to me, as an entrepreneur, there are only two things that are needed to become a successful entrepreneur. One is dreaming so big that everyone thinks you're crazy. And secondly, is completely not having to worry about the fear of failure. And if you can combine those two things, there is really nothing that becomes impossible. And if you really think something is impossible, then it really is, but it is for only for you. So, right? so it's interesting though, because many people have crazy ideas that are in fact crazy. But if you, but if you can combine, but if you can mitigate the risks of the craziness, then, you, then it's right. Then you're right. You have a potentially successful idea. How do you go about either mitigating that risk or convincing yourself that what seems crazy is not crazy? So I think that is, I think, uh, James, is a great topic of discussion. So I think understanding, uh, you know, as we are living in this world of exponential technology, uh, in the world of exponential technology in the early stage, even though it's doubling every year, when the things are so small, most people think that it really is going nowhere until you hit the knee of the curve and then everyone thinks they have no idea where that thing came from. So to me, if you start to understand what are these technologies that are on the exponential path and start to understand that you are going to build something based on where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. So understanding today that even though we don't have a great solution for a fusion energy, but we know we're going to have a, uh, a solution for fusion energy in the next five to 10 years, then really thinking about how do we bring a resource for fusion energy, helium-3 now, because it's going to take you five to 10 years until you build that infrastructure to be able to do that. And you can start to apply that almost in many different fields. So whether you're looking for curing a cancer or you're looking for re-engineering your own body, uh, using both uh, in terms of, uh, you know, um, 
modifying the genetics, whether you're using the CRISPR or Cas9, to essentially specifically modifying the DNA that could cure a certain disease or that could essentially give you a certain advantage um, uh, in the uh, as you evolve. Um, that's one part. Other thing is to start thinking about that as a how when everybody's thinking one way, how would you go about thinking about the same problem in a slightly different way? So, so give, me, that, give me an example from when you first kind of broke out of the cubicle and into the world of innovation. So I think there is, you know, there is really, really in life, you would find these steps happen. These things are more what I would call a, a linear function than a step function. That means you're continuing to evolve every single day until in that exponential curve, something someday says, oh my God, you're really smart, right? But you have been smart all along. It's just people didn't realize it, realize it, right? So I could argue that people at Microsoft didn't quite realize how innovative I was until I left and they say, gee, that guy has really become innovative after he left Microsoft, right? It's almost like, um, not to bring up a, a religious analogy, and I, I am not religious in any way, but the one place, it just reminds me of the story, the one place where Jesus couldn't preach was Nazareth. <laughs> he couldn't go to his home and talk about his ideas. He had to go to other places. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, well, you know, just going back and, uh, you know, coming back to the topic that I was talking about that, you know, in some ways, when you, the, it's a human tendency that anytime you see a problem, your general inclination is to find an expert in that industry to essentially help you solve the problem. And what really happens is that when you go to an expert, you find a incrementally better solution, but you never would find a completely disruptive idea because most disruptions actually happen from people who are from outside the industry looking in. So the fundamentally, as you were asking me, that how do you think outside the cubicle? That is actually is the wrong way of looking at the problem. What you really need to be doing is really looking in a different cubicle. That means you think in a different box, not just outside the box, because human mind does require a box. <coughs> that means if you are a software person, can you go out and really apply the, uh, the mechanics of software to say rocket science? Or can you apply the, you know, the same paradigm of the internet to space? Or can you say, hey, this is what we do in nanotechnology. Can you apply that to uh, say a neuroscience? So, so, and I wanna get specifically to Moon Express in a second because I have some, some ideas, but, oh, but, uh, you know, let's take Infospace, which was your first kind of big company uh, after Microsoft. And it was it was a, a great, huge, you know, 30 billion market cap company. And what you did was very innovative. Rather than making it a destination site by itself, you sort of glommed together 1,500 or so things that would be attractive on an Internet site and, and basically sold those services and white labeled them on Yahoo and other site like those other Internet sites. And with your very first internet company, you did the reverse of what everyone else was thinking. Instead of building your own destination site, you built services that were useful to other internet sites and let them white label it on their own site. That was actually only part of the thing, which second part that I think really brought us to the forefront was that now we have to think back in the early days that, you know, you're talking about the late 90s before there were any smartphones. 
we were the first company to realize that one day you're going to have these mobile devices in your hand that you'll be able to do almost everything with them. And in those days, everybody thought my, that was a crazy idea. So we built the mobile web and the mobile services, whether it was your email, your contacts, and everybody thought, why would you want to do that when everyone has a Palm Pilot? Why would anybody would want to have those services on a small screen when you have a specific device, Palm Pilot? Why would you want to have messaging on a phone when you have pagers? And our thought was one day people would want to have things like weather, the stock course, or even pay. So if you go back and look at the InfoSpace, we were talking about people paying each other using phones and people getting the coupons on a location-based service. When you drive by Starbucks, you get a Starbucks coupon. So, you know, the fact was we were essentially at that point anticipating this whole growth of mobile web, mobile devices, even before they were smartphones. And we were doing that using my first thing was CDPD, when you had to dial the internet on a mobile phone, then it became, uh, you know, using the WAP, the wireless access protocol, when the phone.com had a browser, which was simply a text browser. So, you know, the idea was as these things are evolving, we were building the services for, so if you look at the Verizon mobile web, or you look at the, in those days, uh, the Bell South and, uh, and the Southern Bell SBC had, God, I forget the name, uh, used to be called, uh, you know, before they became AT&T, it used to be called Singular, right? right. So, you know, we, we are building these services for private label for Verizon, Singular, Sprint, Vodafone, and all these guys. So as these people were coming online, they could have these mobile services. So our biggest mindset was that when everybody was told, go out and build a brand, I still let's go out and help everyone build a brand by making them a destination site. And so we provided these services. And our second breakthrough was thinking that as people move from the desktop devices to the desktop phones or mobile devices, can you provide a similar type of services that people will need on their wherever they are? So information at any time, anywhere was our theme at InfoSpace. And, you know, coming back from after InfoSpace, when I started Intellius, it was a really a same type of paradigm shift. In those days, everybody said the information wants to be free. And I said information in itself may want to be free, but the value will always be there if you can solve someone's pain point. And I thought the biggest pain point was post-2000, when you saw the post-September 11, everybody felt that, you know, they were comfortable with the people they knew, but they were always really uncomfortable with the people they didn't know much about. So what if we can launch a service that can give them a basic information about people and make it so easy that even though they could find all that information if they spent five hours on the web through public records, but if you make it so easy for them to find it, they will be willing to pay you $49.95 for something that they can get in 30 seconds instead of spending uh, five, six hours or having to go to the public, uh, you know, to you know, the county records or looking at the property records in the different courthouses or criminal records. If you can make them all come together and make that is easily available, people will pay. So the whole idea of not just the e-commerce, but information commerce came about and the Intellis became one of the first information commerce company where our cost of goods were close to zero. So when you look at the company like um, any e-commerce company like Amazon, they have, a, you know, the gross uh, gross margins 
our everything is really a gross margin. We have 100% gross margin business, really close to 100% gross margin business. So, right. so the whole idea was that everybody thought that information wants to be free. We charge for information. So let me ask you this, though. Was it difficult to combine all the different paperwork and the, all, all the records were in different formats? How did you combine them together into one searchable format? Yeah, so the idea was that information was being digitized already. So information was available, but you are absolutely correct that two things were happening that most places had the information that was partial and it was a fat fingered. So the thinking was, can you really use the big data to be able to take the information in multiple formats, standardize them in a single format, take the information that's partial and use some common heuristics to connect them together and then use the similar type, some different types of heuristics to correct the information that may be fat fingered. So if some people, you know, have Naveen Jain, some other sources, Jain Naveen, some people misspell the name, but then you start to look at it saying, out of 20 records, seven records really say the name is Naveen K. Jain as opposed to there is a different person named Jain Naveen, there is another person named Naveen Jain. Right, how do you combine them? Well, essentially using the heuristics, so you start to say, okay, and then some place it says that there is a guy named Naveen Jain who is living with another person, uh, Anu Jain. Well, it's some other place they say, well, Anu Jain's phone number is this. We say, well, they may be, is this the same person? You look at the age, you look at the thing, how different the people are. And, you know, so my point is I can give you 20, 20 different heuristics of how we combine uh, the information that comes from different records into one single record. So, uh, I mean, anyway, I don't think that really matters. But the point is this, this is what we ended up doing at Intellius. And our first year in our business, our revenue was $6 million. Second year was $18 million. The third year was $45 million. The fourth year was $75 million. So we were really on this path because we were able to crack the code of asking and charging the consumer directly for the information because we thought we were providing value to them. So I think always the belief has always been that if you can find somebody's pain point and you have an aspirin, they would pay you for that aspirin. So, so what are examples like, and you mentioned kind of like this, this Moore's law exponential effect that's hitting many industries. What are some of the pain points that are going to start intersecting new technology soon? Okay. So I think, you know, I can tell you one of what I think are the biggest disruptive things in the industry, the big industry disruption that is going to start happening. And then I'd be more than happy to start talking about in terms of specific ideas that people as an entrepreneur can go out and pursue and the business models that are absolutely becoming possible now that were not possible before. So um, let me just take them, uh, you know, um, one thing at a time here. So if you look at the big industry disruption, you're going to start seeing a massive dis- that you know space is going to be probably one of the biggest industry in the next 10 to 20 years because there are a lot of parallels between what's happening what happened in the internet and what's happening in the space so if you look at the internet there were people who were laying out the fibers and once people start started to have a lot of fibers then the companies came about who were providing what i would call the last mile solution that means they were connecting the people to their homes, and then the people started to build the services on top of these uh, 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 top of these networks. Once people had connection to home, so now you start to look at the parallel 
Now there are multiple companies that are starting to lay that fiber. They are, those are really the companies that are building the rockets. So SpaceX is one, Virgin Galactic, the Stratosphere, the Blue Origins, and you can assume the orbital science, and there's going to be a Boeing, and the many more are going to come that are going to make access to the Earth geosync orbit really, really cheap uh, to launch the nano satellites, and the sat the, these things are going to come down in significant pricing. And then there are going to be people who are going to essentially say, okay, once you have that, what is the last mile solution? So people are going to start building the, you know, the landers who will go out and land on a planet and bring or land on the asteroids and bring the stuff back or really start to create the services on top of that to assume that if you're going to have all these nano satellites there, how do you create the swarm and interconnectedness between that all these devices or all these satellites that are up there? Now, that's really easy in some sense. Peer-to-peer uh, -peer devices. How do you allow them to communicate amongst each other and collect the data and have a single transmission rather than each one of them transmitting directly down to Earth? Or, or I guess another thing is, given that there will be so many rockets or satellites in space, how do you interpret the data that you're then getting from Earth uh, from all these satellites? Yes. So I think there are going to be many services that you're going to start seeing on top of that. So I'm just continuing down on the same path of what are the other industry. You would find that uh, in terms of medical diagnostic, that area is absolutely ripe for disruption. So as you starting to see a lot of the microfluidic devices that are coming along, or you starting to see the sensors, you will start to see that more and more people will be able to diagnose more and more common diseases right at the point of care or, or even at home. So there is no doubt in my mind that in the next five to 10 years, you will have uh, a, a tricorder-like devices that will be able to diagnose the most common diseases and that will also do a lot of what I would say the basic uh, analytics of the blood work or saliva or something to detect whether you, when you are sick, whether you have a viral infection or you have an, a bacterial infection. Because one of the big problems that you started to face as a humanity is that unless we find a solution uh, to the Anti, uh, the bacterial resistance bacteria, I'm sorry, the antibiotics resistance bacteria, we are going to very likelihood that we're going to become uh, a pre-penicillin age society. Well, and, and just just to mention, I, I forgot to mention, you're, you're chairman of the X Prize, uh, which awards uh, significant amounts of money for, for very creative solutions. And one of the prizes is the Tricorder X Prize, which, uh, or one of the contests, I mean, is a, a Tricorder X Prize where, you know, if someone makes a Tricorder that works, they win that X Prize. Yes. Yes. So I'm on the board of X Prize. I'm also on the board of Singularity University. And we just launched the X Prize in India to essentially look at some of the basic problems that are happening in developing countries and use the incentive prize model to solve those problems. I actually, I actually have an idea for the Tricorder X Prize. So <laughs> you take a little, you have a scanner that takes a mini uh, MRI of a person yes. and you match that against a database of, let's say, 30,000 MRIs where each MRI has some sort of disease uh, matched with some sort of cure. And you do uh, statistical matching to figure out what the closest match is. And that suggests to you uh, what the possible disease a person could have is. That actually is, uh, in, in, to some extent, is already being done by IBM Watson. Oh, I'm, right. I, so, I can't so win I, now. <laughs> 
So I mean, Watson, you can take a lot of the imaging that is coming out of uh, various uh, techniques and essentially using the AI and the database, it's able to diagnose cancer better than F uh, oncologist, right? So it is just so good that it, some of the things that even the uh, great uh, uh, radiation uh, radiologist or oncologist are missing is the AI is able to diagnose them because they're able to look at much higher pixel ratio. So, so why aren't why aren't uh, medical facilities starting to call IBM and say, "Hey, we need your help"? So they are actually working. So they're currently working with, uh, I believe, a Mayo Clinic and couple of, uh, or maybe the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, in fact, exactly on that, and they proved this thing for cancer with, I believe, either the Mayo or uh, Cleveland Clinic. I don't quite remember which, but one of the two, where they're working with, and essentially proved that this actually how it works and it does better than uh, their own specialist. Wow, that's great. Okay, I'm gonna have to find another X Prize to go for. <laughs> Well, but there are a lot. I mean, the point is, there are lots of the problems are plenty. So if you start to think about what are the biggest social problems, those are the biggest opportunity for an entrepreneur. So look at education system. Uh, you know, education system. Everybody will tell you is uh, somehow not working. And the fundamental problem that you run into is that, you know, as an entrepreneur, the biggest thing that you have to do is to define the problem correctly. So if you believe the education system is broken, then you are likely to come up with a solution that thinks we can fix it. But if you start to think uh, differently and say, well, education system is not broken because it's doing exactly what it was designed to do, except that our needs have changed. And when your needs have changed, then you say, well, it's really obsolete. And in that case, you say, all right, if it is doing what it's designed to do, then you can't continually improve on it because then it's going to be someday become a system that is just put together with the bandages. Uh, you can redesign the system from ground up for the new need. And the new need is that the skills that you're learning is becoming obsolete faster than ever. So in the olden days, you could learn a certain skill and use for the rest of your life and you have a productive employment. Now, today, if you look at the jobs, majority of the jobs that exist today did not exist 20 years ago. That skill was never required. And some of the things are happening right in front of our eyes. Who would have thought of a, you know, we would ever have a job called big data, big data analytics, right? That job never existed, right? So point is that as the technology is improving, the new types of jobs are being created. And that means your old skills are becoming obsolete. So now you have to have an education system that teaches you learning to learn, talks about interdisciplinary approach, and really uh, and is able to scale on a global basis. So in fact, we are, we are launching a prize, X Prize, around a global learning $15 million prize. That is, how can you take someone who is completely illiterate and 18 months make them read, write, and math? And right. what's the last one? What's what, math, and the, the math? Math, mathematics? Okay. Yeah. So the point is, if you start to think about what are the other big problems, the water is another big problem. So we are launching a prize in India uh, that. Uh, ooh, I should be talking about that yet. Quite yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. But what about has that already been solved? Like Bill Gates. Uh, famously was on the Jimmy Fallon show a few weeks ago, and he's he, he's made significant strides in kind of cleaning up water in India and, and Africa and other kind of at-risk places, you know, kind of cleaning, cleaning out the sewage system. Well, the point is there are many, see, I think, again, 
the water problem as such is is it really a water problem or is that really a symptom of the bigger problem or different problem so for example we talk about lack of a lack of fresh water uh, on earth and then we go back and say all right uh, we have obviously a planet that's 70% water but you would say that's all salt water but that still is not a drinkable water so the two solutions you could argue can we come up with the energies that's so abundant that we can use that abundant energy to uh, desalinize water but i think other way of looking at the stuff is why do we have a lack of fresh water when we have so many mountains flushed with the snow and a lot of fresh water is coming down so you start to think about the majority a large percentage of the water is used in agriculture so you say all right what if we can fix the agriculture to use aeroponic or uh, aquaponic or some other ways to use the seeds to use lightly salted water that will free up plenty of fresh water for human beings yeah good point and then you take a step further and you see majority of the farms are being used to feed the cattle so what if you are able to create a synthetic meat or synth or oh, hate to call it a synthetic meat do what the nature does but do it in a bio factory so can you take a stem cell from a cow and create a uh, muscle tissue that can be used as a uh, as a food so you don't need to use the farm you don't need to raise the cattle that you don't need the farm and then you have plenty of water so you can see that it's not just the initial uh, step of what the technology does but you have to look at the secondary and tertiary implication of what you're doing and so implication of creating a stem cell bio factory is not only it can grow your own organs you can also now create specific tissue like muscle tissue that reduces the need for farming that reduces the need for uh, a, a fresh water and essentially a fresh water becomes a problem of a, bi a synthetic biology problem that's interesting so let, let's apply that same thinking uh, i'm always very curious about moon express so so w one of the objectives of moon express of course is to get uh rare earth minerals back to the united states or back back to the the earth now m most of the rare earth minerals which we use here in the u.s and i don't know if people realize but rare earth is used in almost every utility energy source everything but we get 97 percent of it we import from china and but there is plenty of rare earth minerals right here in the United States, but for various uh, technology or environmental reasons or, you know, lack of technological solutions to en environmental problems, we don't mine for rare earth minerals here in the United States. We used to, but we don't currently. Why not work on problems that can mine for rare earth minerals here in the United States instead of going all the way to the moon to find rare earth minerals? So, so I think uh, if... That was the only reason to go to the moon was primarily to find the rare earth elements. I completely agree with you that we can uh, fundamentally find a technological solution to mine for rare earth elements right on earth without causing an environmental damage. But I think going to the moon is not just that. Obviously, we talked a little, little bit about helium-3, but there is also a, uh, you know, I say stepping stone to really becoming a multi-planetary society. So the idea would be that, yes, you go out and create a commercial um, things in a short term while you're also building for the long term. And so 
moon we have now uh, confirmed that moon has plenty of water and anytime you have plenty of water the beautiful thing about that is the water is h2o that means now you have a, a fuel for the rocket and you have oxygen for people so there is no doubt someday you could create a habitat on the moon and use that fuel that you have to create a fuel depot. So instead of taking all the fuel from Earth, you can essentially refuel yourself on the way to deep space. And once you can start to create a habitable society that's within days of reach, then maybe we can essentially start to live off, live on other planets, maybe Mars someday. So really going to the moon has multiple purposes uh, and a rare earth element is just one of the basic things. I see. But so I, so it's almost the way you mitigate the risk is by having kind of business success along the way. But that's just a stepping stone to the next idea. That's right. So, that is absolutely correct. So it's interesting. So you, you spoke in a recent TEDx uh, in the Netherlands uh, where you specifically say, you know, you address the issue of, you know, we're always thinking about solving world problems like healthcare and education, but you say first we need to start solving problems uh, inside of ourselves. And maybe you can elaborate a little more what you what you meant by that. I don't quite remember that. That was I think was way back when. That must have been yeah. a couple of years ago. <laughs> it was 2012. Okay, yes, I think I did, uh, you know, other TED Talks recently at the United Nations and others. So I was wondering, what did I say about the inner, <laughs> you know, but let me just go reflect on that since you mentioned that. You know, I think in some sense, we as humans are constantly looking for happiness for something that we acquire or something that's external. And I think uh, maybe it's partly coming from an Eastern culture. I believe that happiness really resides inside us. And unless you can find that inner happiness, nothing else in life you can find happiness from. Those are all very short term or temporary. So even if you were to say that, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's the, my family, my wife, my children, they make me happy. But the fact is, once you give the remote control of your happiness to someone, that they now have a, essentially a remote control to make you unhappy. And being married, I've been married for 26 years. I can tell you that they do use that remote control once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. But so, so, so you're saying try to figure, so what techniques do you use to look for happiness or, or at least well-being? Let's not call it happiness, but let's call it well-being. What, what do you use to find it inside of yourself so you could then focus on solving these, these major issues? So I think just being at peace with uh, who you are and accepting who you are and, um, you know, and to some extent, finding the things that you like to do, because uh, in some sense, that is, uh, is something coming from your inner voice. That means doing things with a purpose and a mission rather than simply doing it for the reasons whether... I want to make a billion dollars or I'm doing this for some other reasons. Finding a cause or a mission that you care about. So rather than focusing on a goal, focus on a purpose that you care about. And, and that's I how, how would you how would you suggest like let's say someone is listening to this and they're thinking, "Boy, this guy got from cubicle to billion dollar companies." Um, and he somehow found his passion, his purpose, his interest in life. But I don't know how to find my interest in life. I'm thinking in the person 
in the cubicle, how would they how would they go about uh, sort of figuring out what their interests are in life? I think the way you know you are what I mean. I obviously speak to a lot of young entrepreneurs, and you know, obviously, as you can imagine, that all of our children. I'm you know, I'm probably twice your age, maybe not twice, but I think much closer to twice. I'm looking at your photo on Skype. Uh, if I were to guess you, you're probably 31, right? No, no, I'm 47. Oh, God, you look young. <laughs> Thank so you. I'm, you you so look I'm, very young yourself, by the way. So we're, we're equal there. So I'm, 50, I'm 55 now, and I have three, uh, three children. Our oldest is uh, called, um, uh, oldest is Uncle Jen. He's, he's a CEO of a company called Human. And when he was 16 years old, he started something called Kairos Society which became, uh, as a nonprofit, the world's largest college entrepreneurship uh, uh, group. So he invites 500 top college entrepreneurs from 150 countries. And they all come there and he brings the mentors to help these uh, entrepreneurs be successful. Our daughter is now going to be a senior at Stanford and she's all of 20 years old. She's a Mayfield Fellow. She's a Stanford STEM Fellow. She's on the board of Stanford for Women at Business, and she's on the board of Stanford Ventures, right? And our youngest, who is 16 years old, competed for a tricorder prize that you mentioned, went to semifinal, and he just got admission at Stanford. The reason I mention is that, you know, in some sense, every one of them, when you ask them, so that if you are sitting yourself and saying, what is my passion and cause when I'm sitting inside a cubicle? The question you ask, which is what I ask all of our children, and the reason I mention is this is what they end up finding their purpose, is assume you have a billion dollars. What would you do? And the thing that you would do is what you should be doing now, because that's what's going to help you make a billion dollars, right? So you need to start with a thing that what would you really do if you had everything that you really wanted from uh, material things? So you have a billion dollars. You have done everything. You bought the house. You bought everything. Now what? And what that is your true purpose that you would like to do and start with that and everything else will follow. Gosh, I really like that. That's a really good uh, formula. Assuming you do all the kind of um, whatever luxury things you'd, you would want to do if you had a billion, uh, what would you do after that to kind of help people or help yourself or whatever? Or, or even the cause you care about and say, look, if I had that, the thing that I would really do would be to save the tigers in Africa or I would go out and find a piece in Rwanda or I would go out and save the turtles in uh, <laughs> Galapagos. I don't know. I mean, whatever that is you would do, do that now and you will find a business around it. Because to me, doing well and doing good are not mutually exclusive. And I really think the fundamental problem people start to think is they think they would do philanthropy. Philanthropy is never about giving money. Philanthropy is all about solving a problem. And when you're solving a problem, the only way to solve a problem in a sustainable way is to create a business that's a profitable business. Because anything that's not profitable is not sustainable. Interesting. So, so, so in in a sense, like the like Moon Express being like a stepping stone to further planetary travel. Along the way, it's you, you have figured out a business model for it, so to exactly. keep it sustainable. Yes. So, so what what's the plans? Like, given that now we can send commercial manned aircraft into space, what's the next steps in terms of sending something to the moon? 
Well, so, so imagine so far only three superpowers have ever landed on any planet, period. Forget them, just the moon, on any planet. So now if for the first time a private company can land on the moon or any planet, imagine that to me is a singularity event. It is that four minute a mile problem. Until someone thought it was doable, nobody did that. Once you land on the moon, at that point, what people will do with that is something you and I can't even imagine. So, you know, other possible parallel to that is really, if you go back to the introduction of iPhone, it was the first time when Steve Jobs said, we're going to have a phone that's going to have a no keypad. And people say, how can you possibly have a phone without the keypad? That's what makes a phone a phone. You dial, <laughs> dial a phone number. And the second brilliant thing was when Steve Jobs said, we're going to have application store that we're going to di distribute these applications. Now, if you ask anyone in the thing and say, hey, when you have this iPhone, what is it? What application would you use when you have this phone? There is not a single person would have said, I would love to throw the birds at the pigs. And that's exactly <laughs> what they did. So point is, once you land on the moon, the, um, the type of things that people will come up with, because now suddenly they will think that's an accessible thing that was never possible before. So you open the people's mind to the possibilities. And once you, once you can imagine these possibilities, for example, would the drug companies suddenly will realize that many of the drugs uh, they are developing on Earth are just not possible because of gravity. And on one-sixth gravity on the moon, the things will crystallize very differently and the drugs can be done that can never be uh, manufactured on Earth. And suddenly you have new types of drugs that are coming up that will fundamentally change the human lives. Uh, that's interesting. So, so what, what's a time frame? When do you think it's possible that we'll be landing on the moon? So right now, our time frame is actually to go next year. And um, as you probably know that a uh, couple of months ago, we became the first company on planet Earth to uh, essentially demonstrate our lunar lander at the Ken Kennedy Space Center. And the NASA issued the press release saying that, you know, how proud they are that a private company like Moon Express is able to demonstrate something that has never been done before, have a flight test of their own lunar lander. So we know you can launch that lunar lander. And then uh, what's the complication in terms of getting the lunar lander to the moon? I mean, we did it in 1969, so I guess we could do it now. Well, except that, you know, nine, you know, when you do it, I mean, obviously, if you think about it, a lot of the things are a lot easier because the computing power that was uh, used to land the man on the moon, now we have more computing power in the phone that we have in our pocket. Right? But on the other hand, it did cost us tens of billions of dollars to land. And now the trick is, can you use off-the-shelf exponential technologies to do it in a way that's commercially viable? So, for example, our whole mission to the moon from beginning research and development and landing would be under $50 million. Now, that is a challenge. And the challenge is not just landing on the moon. It's about landing on the moon softly. Anybody can land hard, right? You can crash on the moon a lot easier than landing softly. So the biggest challenge is how do you reduce the cost? So what we did is we start to think like software people. 
we say, you know what? There are lots and lots of people who are building the rocket to launch the satellites to geosync orbit. And that is becoming so competitive, the prices are continuing to come down. So what if we can build a lunar lander that can sit as a secondary space under the satellite so you don't have to have your own rocket? So as they launch the satellite, they can also throw you up in the same orbit. And can you have now a smaller rocket that can take you from the uh, Earth orbit all the way uh, to a uh, moon? And as you can imagine, once you are outside the Earth gravity in the Earth or geosync orbit, it requires a very little, small power to get out of the Earth orbit. And then there is really no gravity at all. So you can float around all the way to the moon orbit. And then you deorbit and you go towards the moon and you're shooting like a bullet. And at that point, you fire the rocket in the reverse and you start to slow down. Right. So obviously, there is a lot more complicated stuff. There is no GPS on the moon. So you have to really know where you are. You have to keep firing the lasers to know how, how, you know, how many feet you are from the Earth and you start to slow down. You also have to constantly be mapping what part of the moon you are at. So you, you look at all the different maps that NASA already has. So every six inch of moon has been mapped. And as we are going down, we are comparing where we are in the maps to know where we are landing and how fast we are coming down. Right. So that's really the work is once you do that, everything else becomes easier. So once you can show people that you have developed the technology that can be done, uh, our second lender will cost us under $10 million. So now you start to say, OK, now you have the technology that can be deployed for $10 million. It changes the game. So things that you used to think was not commercially viable for $10 billion suddenly become very viable for $10 million. Right. And then I guess, I mean, you would have to sort of have something that collects the materials you want to collect, like the rocks or helium or whatever. And then you'd have to lift off and go back to the satellite. Yeah. Well, well yes. Or... So the idea would be that once you have done that, then you really take uh, a lander inside the lander and the, uh, the second lander really becomes a payload and uh, you land using the first rocket's uh, rocket fuel and the second lander really becomes your return vehicle. And so what we're doing is really sending the return vehicle first. In the second time, you send the mothership and the return vehicle. The return vehicle takes off with the payload and really comes the two ways of doing it. Either you come down to the... Earth orbit and a space station uh, and the people who are bringing back the stuff from the space station use that. We are also building our own uh, glider vehicle similar to the space shuttle that will come back from the moon or from the space station and really glide back with the accuracy of GPS within 10 feet. And you can literally bring anything back from the moon or from the space station on demand, just like Uber. We say, hey, here's my science payload, take it up and bring it right back down. So we are developing that capabilities or you can just do that how, uh, you know, we did in the old days. You, dump, you know, you come down and really uh, throw yourself in the ocean and uh, with a beacon and somebody picks you up. Right. So 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 questioning now, again, the the business viability, because you want to make it sustainable. Let's say you were able to collect all the things that you want to collect. And again, given that you might discover new solutions once you actually get to the, the moon. But right now you're going for the 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 rare platinums, the rare earths, the helium three. Once once this, there becomes a market for this, where could there be a chance you flood the market so much the prices go down so significantly the business is no longer sustainable? Well, so 
you know, obviously, uh, at any point of time, so you first look at the stuff, what's most rare? I mean, today, there is no human being on Earth that can actually own the moon rock. It's all belong to the government. So now, even if you were to just simply look at that as a novelty item, that could itself be a billion dollar uh, a novelty item that you can sell. Right. 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 Then you start to say, okay, if you're bringing helium three, the price points right now is uh, you know thousand dollars per gram. So if you bring a ton of helium three, that's a massive, massive quant- a massive amount of money just for that helium-3. And as the prices come down, you start to say, okay, now we have a capabilities of a spacecraft that can create the fuel in, in, in space and start to refuel all the satellites so they don't have to become um, ah. uh, expensive. You can start to move them around. Uh, you know, you can start to refuel, become a fuel depot on the way to Mars. So the point is, as you're doing this and as this business starts to mature and the price come down, you have a new business that's taking off. Yeah, that's interesting. So so what's what's your process like? Obviously, you're like an idea machine. You're coming up with ideas all the time. What's kind of your daily process you would recommend to people so that they become fluent in the language of ideas the way you are? Obviously, you're extremely creative and come up with all these businesses how can people start to think like that? So I think, James, one of the things that I, I find myself is that, uh, you know, this intellectual curiosity and just wanting to learn and, uh, for the sake of learning and then ultimately thinking about where it can be applied. So even going to Singularity University, learning about neuroscience, learning about nanotechnology, learning about genetics not only it was that what I learned, what happens today, what's in the lab that's going to be in the three to five years, it gave me the uh, the vocabulary to be able to read this stuff that I would have never understood or wanting to read because I didn't have the fundamental basic knowledge. So this is just the fact I spent the uh, last 72 hours reading the science magazine on how cancers are formed and how different types of immunotherapy can work. So, you know, how, why is the, why, how does cancer avoid the immune system and the T cells and really looking at that, you know, why the immune system is not attacking them and why certain um, drugs that were done in the past, like CTLA-4, that increases the immune system, they become ineffective and how people are learning that, you know, how PD-1 and PD-L1s, which are the, you know, programmed deaths for the cell are interfering with that and how you can develop the drugs which will essentially be anti-PD-1, anti-PDL-1, along with the anti-CTLA-4, combined together can kill any cancer in the body. But only reason I mention that is the fact I was curious enough to learn, not because I have anybody in the family that has a cancer, I'm just curious. And how the microbiome of our gut is actually causing the Alzheimer. So I was just curious about that how microbiome, which is 90% of the cells in our body, impacts us whether it's a disease of a Parkinson's disease or high blood pressure or any types of cancer, it turns out that 20% of the cancers are caused by the imbalance of microbiome or the Parkinson's starts, actually the protein starts in the gut and your gut itself has a neuron. It really is the own um, neural system in the gut, just like in your brain. So when your mom said, trust your gut, she really was saying, you know, listen to both the brains. Right. Well, yeah, I guess uh, serotonin is a big neurotransmitter in the in the gut. Yeah. So 
point is that, you know, all the reason I mentioned is what I do is I spend, I get up very early in the morning. I get up between 4.30 and 5 and I spend the first two hours of my day really reading about different subjects. So from neuroscience, I probably must have read 50 books on neuroscience and I subscribe to every Twitter feed on neuroscience because I want to learn about how human brain works because I thought that's how I'm going to be able to find a way to change the education system. When I started to get interested in the medicine, I started to think about, you know, learning about what are the different sensors are there, how the different diseases are caused, how the systems work, and how are you able to modify the genes and the DNA. And that's how I started learning about the CRISPR, which allows you to do a multiple gene uh, modification in, uh, in situ. So you can now change the germ line, you know, before the baby is born for exactly what you want. And once you change the germline for, you know, sperm or the egg, you can have a baby that could be exactly the type of both uh, physiologically or genetically what you want. So let me ask. So if, if someone, if, if you do tests on a pregnant woman and she has, uh, they find out the child has Down syndrome, is it, is it by then too late to change no, anything? Not at all. Not at all. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. So, so where, where would someone like that go to look for solutions? So my point is, again, uh, you know, so reading, so what I do is I spend, I was mentioning, James, that I spend the first two hours of my day just reading different science blogs, diff, un, just reading and understanding all types of things, whether they are, sometimes I understand all of it, sometimes I understand 70% of it, but the fact is, what I learn, I'm able to go out and talk to some experts and learn more from it, right? Hmm. Because having that foundational knowledge, just being surrounding yourself with the people who are Curious and experts in their field allows you to essentially, uh, you know, continue to learn. So my thinking that, you know, what I find most fascinating is that even though I may not know much, but I'm not afraid to say, hey, I was reading this and I didn't quite understand how this works. So, for example, I was, you know, I learned a little bit about cancer. And two weeks ago, I was talking to Pat, uh, Dr. Patrick Shunshong, who is, you know, obviously been extremely accomplished human being. Um, and working on cancer. And, you know, this is what I, how I understood. And he said, oh, that is very nice. What you also need to know is this and this. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's very cool, right? So now I have more knowledge than I would have ever had. But he would have never talked to me if I, if he had to sit down at the basic. So let me tell you what the human cells are, right? That's interesting. So, so what would you recommend? Like what, what's, what's three, three to five books a listener uh, should read to kind of, um, Get the juices flowing. Well, you know, I can tell you in the different subject, in the neuroscience, I mean, if you, you know, I think you would absolutely enjoy the Michelle Kaku's new book called The Future of the Brain. It's just a fascinating book in terms of what is physically, you know, what physics allows you to be possible. Can you really have telepathy? Can you really have telekinetic? Can you really have all the things that we have been thinking of as science fiction? And which one is going to remain science fiction, which is going to become a science reality? So I think it's just a fascinating book. About I'm definitely going to read that. Um, and, you know, so I think that's a great, uh, if you want to just, on, you know, coming on a neuroscience, there's some really, really great book on, if you want to uh, look at the neural plasticity, the brain that changes itself, I think is a good book. There's a, a book on um, Incognito, that's a, just a great book on how your subconscious mind is doing all the work and by the time it comes to your conscious mind, you actually are barely making any decisions until your prefrontal cortex gets involved and saying, just don't do it, right? 
But uh, so those are great books on uh, that subject. I think there is a uh, book on genetics that I found really, really interesting. It's a big uh, book called Epigenetic Revolution. Uh, that's really, really good. But in terms of daily blogs, I mean, I really, you know, I like MIT Tech Review. Uh, there are a lot of good stuff in almost every subject I find there. Um, and, you know, God, I, I got to go look at my bookmarks, you know, <laughs> the different things. That's okay. This is fascinating. I'm writing everything down. Uh, but I'll be glad to. In fact, you know what I would do, James? I would send you some of my uh, reading stuff, and I also will send you some of the recent articles that I've written on different subjects that I think you might just absolutely enjoy in terms of, uh, uh, you know, what is philanthropy, how you disrupt the education system, um, you know, whole thing, whole bunch of things on entrepreneurship, on innovation. I- I'll send you some of the articles, and I think you'll really enjoy uh, that's great. And I'll, I'll share those with my listeners as well. And, um, so Naveen, I really appreciate you spending the time. It's been, uh, one of the most fascinating podcasts I've ever done. Uh, I'm really happy. So, uh, good luck with, with everything you're working on. Thanks a lot, James. It's just been an honor and a pleasure. And I uh, enjoy your podcast and uh, it's glad to be on it. Thank you, Naveen. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 